Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we go bananas for Keyforge, for its community, and the excitement of discovery. I am still somehow here as your host, Ed Pocock, and I am joined by the co-captain of the Starship Discovery. It's Zach Armstrong. Hello, everyone. Hello. Happy to be here. And our listeners are probably wondering, what exactly is a retrospective episode and i i will i will duly answer that question i think yeah we certainly do have a penchant on call of discovery for uh, merging two words together with absolutely no shame whatsoever and that is exactly what we've done here so this is the first of our retrospective looks at the different sets of keyforge and why are we doing this roughly 16 17 18 months from the launch of the first set well i think for us it's because by that time we've really had a chance to put that set in perspective we've had a chance to see how that set performs within the wider meta we've had a chance to get over the hype of certain cards and we've had a chance to really kind of reflect on on that set and and what it offers and what it what it brings to keyforge as a whole and as a universe it also aligns very very much with the vault warrior rotation periods and for vault warrior you are allowed to use decks from the three most recent sets which of course contrasts with the rest of keyforge where you can use decks from any set so zach what did call of the archons the first set of keyforge mean for you it meant you know it's actually hard not to just say discovery as it's both the title of our <laughs> podcast and the reason we both play Keyforge. Uh, what what the first set meant for me was learning learning a new card game paradigm is what it meant for me. It was almost less about the particular cards and how exciting they were, but how they showed me how new Keyforge was. A couple of our categories uh, and ways we're going to talk about call of the archons here really really bring up cards and situations that can only happen in keyforge cards that were created to to play inside of the completely new paradigm of this card game so call of the archons of course fewer keywords fewer complicated interactions perhaps overall a more straightforward set to play uh, but it's really what we needed because everybody was learning a whole new card game language as they played it so so this was this is the 
this is the set that taught me the language of Keyforge, and it feels very special because of that. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I am just imagining now what would have happened if they just dropped Worlds Collide straight off the bat. Ooh. I think the whole community would have looked at, looked at it and gone, what is this? Right. And, you know, they, they almost had to kind of, you know, spoon feed us a little bit and, and, you know, build us up so that we could we could handle such complex interactions in something that was such a different game. Oh, yeah. And, Certainly, you know, that probably reflected in how long it took people to discover the game and really understand some of the nuances in Call of the Archons and what was strong and what was weak. There are obviously things that were clearly very strong in Call of the Archons, and I'm certainly looking at you, Bait and Switch. There's so many nuances within that, despite it being a, a much easier set to play in some ways than than the later ones. And of course, it was difficult to find decks as well. Did you find that a challenge to begin with, Zach? At first, uh, at first, yes, I got my hands on a handful of decks right at the beginning. Uh, but after a while, yes, it just dried up. I was fortunate enough to have maybe five or six decks right at the beginning, in addition yeah. to in addition to the two I acquired early, uh, lovingly through uh, FFG's social team. So yes, it was hard to acquire them for a while. It's a good number, though, six to eight, and it, I, I guess it means that you got to really play those decks and really learn them and appreciate them. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Got to play them a lot. And of course, a couple of those decks came back to later after some months away and discovered I wasn't good enough to realize how good those decks were. (laughs) And fun fact here, because for organized play, this really was it was referred to as the dawn of discovery. This was prior to organized play being really set up. And, you know, at that time where because of that, maybe in part, it was really difficult to tell what was good in Keyforge and what what wasn't for, mm-hmm. for playing purposes. And it was a mixture of the dawn of discovery and the set name Call of the Archons that spawned the title of this podcast. We literally mashed the cool bit and the discovery bit together. So fun fact there. Hmm, a nice little bit of Call of Discovery history for everyone. <laughs> history for something that's only been around for six months. I love it. <laughs> it is history, technically. It is. It is history. And I do have to say, as a as a part of all of this examining of Call of the Archons as the initial set, I I have to give a huge compliment to the uh, production teams, the design teams that Keyforge didn't completely fall apart with some strange mistake in its first year because it is a different card game on so many levels that I half expected when I heard about this card game for it to be the thing that created a lot of discussion and then somebody else did better. But FFG and Brad Andres and Richard Garfield have really executed on this so amazingly well i think the funniest thing that happened was some unfortunate deck names that made it through and aren't legal for tournament play and even that wasn't widespread it just turned some things into collector's items so i I really have to hand it to to the teams who are making this game absolutely there's a lot that goes into making something that hasn't been made before and we certainly put that question to brad andrews in a previous episode so so please to our listeners that haven't heard that do go back and listen that is designing keyforge with brad andrews we said to him it certainly says something about 
FFG fantasy flight games that they were willing to really branch out and take take a risk on something that no one really had ever done before. It was unique in concept as it was unique in, in the game itself. And it, it's certainly not something that I think a lot of companies would branch out and do. Agreed. Agreed. So big kudos, as we say over here in the US, to to Brad and team. Big kudos. So the way we are going to structure our retrospective episode is by a series of awards. We are going to be handing out the uh, golden compass of discovery, which is actually definitely something that Zach and I both have in front of us, mm-hmm. to different cards for their role in the set. And who is voting on these? I hear our illustrious listeners asking, well, it is none other than our glorious patrons. Uh, we have posed these questions to our patrons and said, of the above nominees, which one gets your award? And our patrons have duly given those awards out. So we, this is an award ceremony as much as it is a look back. Our first category here is on pushing design boundaries. And of course, it really was our first set. So everything felt very Keyforge in the first set because, well, Keyforge didn't exist and nor did anything else like it. But we've we've narrowed some things down to, to a few areas. So Zach, how, how did Call of the Archons push design boundaries for you? Call of the Archons showed us, one, how to play Keyforge, which is a completely different game where your cards are locked in and you don't have to pay resources for cards. Your, your resource is what house you call in a turn. And then it showed us how to break those rules. So the way it pushed the boundaries was it set up a new paradigm instead of paying X resources for X creature or X item, it is simply the three houses. And that is your restriction for how you can play cards. And then all of the all of the action cards and creatures will start to mess with that. And the race for Amber, of course, at the heart of the game. Uh, so I think the way it, it pushed it as a set was showing us all the ways it can bend this new paradigm, which is awfully impressive. So many games will be a model of an older game with a fresh new idea. This this left all of that behind. It's a race instead of a battle. And you have houses instead of resource costs. And then to actually dance among all of those rules and restrictions is just is just a really beautiful thing to watch these cards, you know, mess with the rules of the game in the first set. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to that point, we certainly had a, a bunch of people coming across from Magic the Gathering and thinking, okay, well, I've thought fought with all of my Brobnar creatures and they've got nothing on the board, but they're they're still winning. What am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing wrong? Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, that's Keyforge, isn't it? So, Zach, what are our nominations here? Our nominations in the Pushing Design Boundaries category are Phase Shift, Time Traveler, and Wild Wormhole. Now, I do know some people may be writing emails to the Academy wondering why uh, only House Logos is represented among our Pushing Design Boundaries here. <laughs> Well, as long as we as long as we don't uh, go ahead and announce the wrong one, then uh, I'm right. <laughs> sure we won't be accused of uh, promoting too much favoritism. Yes, yes, of course, uh, of course. And so, Ed, I'm going to hand you the envelope across across the Atlantic here, and if you will reveal our winner of pushing design boundaries. 
Well, the the winner of the pushing design boundaries category for the Cool of Discovery Golden Compass is the Time Traveller. And the reason for this, I think, is only in Keyforge can you have a rarity that is dependent upon another card. And Time Traveller obviously doesn't just come as Time Traveller, but Time Traveller comes with a companion, the companion of help from future self. And the fact that there's two cards together that work in tandem that you can't get on their own index that just simply, you know, they don't come alone, they come as a pair is is mind-blowing and is something that we really haven't seen in in any other game that i'm aware of anyway and certainly listeners do let us know if there are other games doing similar things but we are blissfully unaware of them at this point yeah time traveler was an amazing card in that regard but also in in what it offered and have you had any interesting experiences with time traveler zach uh mostly a bunch of very educational losses as i am unfortunately not the owner of any time traveler decks Ooh, ouch. Mm-hmm. Oh, ouch. Mm-hmm. I am not, not the owner of a Kota Time Traveler deck, but I do have a couple of very, very enjoyable Time Traveler decks in Age of Ascension. Ah, excellent. Excellent. A lot of fun things to happen in Age of Ascension and Call of the Archons with Time Traveler. Very interesting card. So why Phase Shift? I think this one really earns its place because one of the main rules about Keyforge that we'd all been told when we open up a deck is that each turn you have to pick a house you can't use a house you can't play cards from a house that isn't the house that you've called at the beginning of the turn and right from set one brad said to us okay well these are the rules but actually that rule doesn't count anymore and phase shift allows you to play one non-logos card in the turn that you play that action card it is really the the kind of tip of the iceberg of the the possibilities that can be done with with that mechanic with this out of house play and we've seen this with with cards in star alliance and across a number of different houses now but but this was really the first mhm yes that's that's very true and the last nominee wild wormhole the way it pushes design boundaries breaking those rules that were set up for us in call of the archons is is, of course, the possibility of house cheating, playing card from outside of your house. You get that amber upon play. And honestly, just the excitement of flipping the card off of the top of your deck to play it is just so fun, so much the the heart of Keyforge. One of the earliest Keyforge podcasts was named after that card, I believe. And um, it's just such a fun card, such a risky card, and one that uh, plays the top of your deck. You you don't know what you're getting. Uh, you need to know your deck for it to really be advantageous or to at least weigh the risks you're taking. And so it really breaks the rules and dives into some excitement that is really just well, very well positioned in Keyforge more than in some other games as far as just excitement and risk and 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 uh, a little bit of random play. So that is the reason it was included in the push design boundaries category as a nominee. And in many ways, Keyforge itself really is the wild wormhole, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It really is. It really is. You don't know what you're going to get. You don't know what you're going to get. So moving on now, this is our second category our category for the most infamous card in the set. And with every set, 
there are some controversies. There are cards where people think maybe they're overpowered. Maybe they're underpowered. Maybe they're in the conversation for a completely different reason. And there were certainly a few cards of this uh, ilk in Call of the Archons. And we would certainly be remiss here at Call of Discovery if we didn't mention them now, almost as a, a little bit of nostalgic history for Keyforge. What are our nominees then, Zach? Our nominees for the category of most infamous are Control the Week from House Dis. Bait and Switch from House Shadows, and Library Access from House Logos. And we've only got one Logos card in this one, so, you know, don't accuse us of too much, listeners. But the first one, Control the Week, is a card that anybody who has played an Archon tournament will certainly be familiar with. This is the card that it's an action card. It gives you an Amber Pip, which is a bonus, and it says that your, you choose a house and your opponent must play that house on their next turn. So the more skilled players among the community can really take advantage of this to wreak some havoc with their opponents. Why is this in the most infamous list? Well, for a time, there was a time when you could use control the weeks and other things that restricted your opponent to actually lock them out of the game entirely. That has since been removed from the rules. But at the same time, to begin with, you could literally find a way of, of taking your opponent out of the game and saying, you can't play any house at all, and you lose the game. That's very true. And uh, Ed, you may not know this, but one of the decks I opened at a Keyforge release party in November of 2018 was a triple control the week single Restoring Guntis deck, which is the combination which produces the effect you were just referencing where a player must play a turn with no active house. And it also had a master plan, the artifact where when you play it, you can put a card from your hand underneath it. And then uh, master plan also has an Omni effect where you can play the card from underneath master plan. So I had ways to stash pieces of the combo away for later and then spend at the right moment, three turns telling my opponent that they just didn't get to play Keyforge. This is a disgustingly brilliant combo, and I hope that you still have this deck. <laughs> I do, I do. That deck is the Randy of Bombagam. So before that rules clarification, she was a combo deck because I just wanted to lock my opponent out while I reaped and got far ahead. Uh, now, uh, unfortunately for my need to practice, uh, she is a skill-based deck. Instead of working towards a combo, I now have three Control the Week in the Restoring Guntis that I just need to time out correctly and choose the right house when i play those cards which we were talking in a previous episode about our approach to learning decks through the cd rom method and if uh, you haven't heard that go back and check out our embarking on an epic quest episode which was three episodes ago now and that that talks through that format but this is certainly a deck it sounds like zach that would require a lot of looking at and, and learning to really uh, get good with Oh, yes. I'm still many repetitions away from being great with that deck. I think it'll be the subject of another epic quest down the line. And the subject of many a Keyforge post during the time of Call of the Archons was Bait and Switch. And this was the Shadows card that said, does your opponent have more amber than you? 
if they do, they don't anymore. So <laughs> typically, you would uh, hold your opponent off forging a key, forge one yourself, and then take half of their amber, um, which uh, I, at the time, because of the dependency that we had on a lot of those rush decks, those decks with dust pixies, lots of ways of getting a lot of amber, bait and switch really felt like it was, I mean, in retrospect, probably a bit of an equalizer. But at the time, it felt like the, the kind of killer play that you just wouldn't see in other card games. What's your hot take on bait and switch, Zach? My uh, my hot take would be certainly that the errata was needed. I think bait and switch was often because it was in House Shadows. There was other stealing going on. You would your you could be ahead of your opponent quite easily and then just take an additional three or four amber from them by forging a key and then dropping that bait and switch, which increased that differential between you and your opponent. So I think it created play situations that just weren't quite as fun because it was a bit too powerful. It was too much of a swing. So I was, I was happy for the errata and I think it turned bait and switch into, you know, a solid mid grade card for shadows. Completely agreed. And that errata said that actually with, bait and switch you could only steal a maximum of two amber from your opponent and only mm-hmm. if they have more than you at the time that you've stolen the first one there's quite a few cards that allow you to steal a couple of amber these days and maybe bait and switch doesn't quite have the same uh, power or or, or or ring to it as too much to protect or interdimensional graph do in the long run but mm-hmm. our third nominee is library access and uh, i played many uh, against many a library access reverse time and uh, library access near feed seed deck uh, at the time of call of the archons and zach talk us through uh, the many gruelish ways in library access deck made their player feel feel the the point of no tomorrow Mm, well, yeah. <laughs> yes, the library access really, uh, I think the, the win condition for library access was getting your opponent to quit because they were had been bored for the last 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> playing library access, of course, which is an action card with play. Every time you play another card, draw a card. And then the Nepenthe Seed, which you can use on any turn to return a card from your discard pile to your hand before the errata, you could essentially gain an effect by playing library access twice, where every time you play one card, you draw two, and you're almost sure to draw into more Logos cards that way and draw almost your whole deck. So in person, of course, this took so long to do. And sometimes it would turn into a situation where you just had a game-winning combo in your hand because you could draw your entire deck. So it really was quite infamous, especially in real-life play for uh, for how long those library access turns would take. Absolutely. And for that reason, it was essentially errated. Library access now once played must be purged from the game entirely. Although, of course, we're now getting a few ways of sneaking purge back into the game a bit. And I'm wondering whether there's going to be a deck in the wild somewhere that allows library access to take advantage of that. But we shall see. 
We shall. We shall. I think I think with the the design space they have where you might be able to get a library access back if you're able to play it twice in a turn, that means the stars have aligned, you have a weird combo deck, and you are having a once-in-a-lifetime experience of getting to play twice in a turn. So I will applaud the person who pulls that off. But the winner of this category, and I think it wins because just the sheer amount of volume that there was around this card at the time but also the fact that now with retrospect and with perspective we see actually that this card was probably more of as i said earlier an equalizer to some of the strengths that we saw with rush amber rush in that that first set and this card is bait and switch mm-hmm Congratulations to House Shadows on your on your first Cetrospective award taken home. One to Logos, one to Shadows. In our next category, we are talking about those cards that have had a longer term impact on the game. And of course, if you're sitting here listening to this in a couple of years, you're probably thinking, these are not the relevant cards from Kota. It is indeed a Mamook that's become the biggest card or, or something. <laughs> it's it's going to be something weird and random that we just haven't thought about at the moment. But uh, that is for you to know and not us so for us to know we are looking at this and our nominees for this are of house dis once more control the week um of house dis once again guilty hearts and then of house shadows reigning in another another time with too much to protect so what are your thoughts on control the week there zach Hmm. Control the Week, as far as in the category of long-term impact, I think because Control the Week interacts with that house choice dynamic that's at the very heart of Keyforge, I think that's why it's going to have long-term impact because the... Uh, the strategy by which you play Control the Week, uh, it will always be an effective card. Now, of course, we've seen with some new houses like, uh, well, mostly with Star Alliance, where they can jump out of house so easily. Uh, Star Alliance almost doesn't care about Control the Week if I put you into Star Alliance. So uh, Control the Week will always have a great impact, and it will always be a very complicated decision about what house to call when you play Control the Week and when do you play Control the Week. Completely, completely. And the second one, I think, captures... I, there are definitely a few honorable mentions in, in this in this category. And I mean, we'd be, again, remiss not to mention Interdimensional Graph, the Logos card that says, next turn, if your opponent forges a key, they give you all of their remaining amber. It is huge, and it has spawned all sorts of crazy combos. But we've been we've been giving quite a lot to House Logos so far, and you know we we didn't want to make it too imbalanced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Guilty Hearts is one of those cards that became much much better, uh, became a much hotter commodity when we got a new set and said, "Wow, look at this card that was okay in Call of the Archons. It's now even stronger against future decks," which I really think is a beautiful thing about Keyforge. And Guilty Hearts really captures that. 
And some of our listeners might not have even come across Guilty Hearts because it is, of course, a rare card. So it is an action card and it says play, destroy each creature with any amber on it, which, of course, is essentially a meteor for the dinosaurs, but not in their own house. And we could have said here there's another card, which is another rare. And again, you might not have come across this one either. This is Word of Returning. It is an untamed action card and it says play, deal one damage to each enemy creature for each amber on it return all amber from those creatures to your pool so even if they've got a bunch of wards on them you get all of the amber and uh yeah if they've used uh, tributes six empers whatnot then it's going to be really really interesting to to be able to kind of use this and and uh, get the better of your your opponents zach do you have any decks with word of returning in uh, I don't. I don't think so. I have a few with guilty hearts, but I'm not sure I have any with word of returning. I might, but honestly, it was not a very strong card in Coda, so I don't think I've combed through my moderate collection to see if I have any. Tragically, I do not have any of either at this current point in time. Although I do have some shiny Coda boxes looking and staring at me that uh, <laughs> are just waiting to be opened. So very much looking forward to that. Our third card here is too much to protect. And Zach, have you had any bad experiences with this card in the past? Because I know I certainly have. Oh, oh yes, yes. Uh, it keyforged with the design space of being a race and gathering amber. Too much to protect is the absolute picture of the cards that are designed to punish you know large amber bursts going far above six is of course too much to protect steals all amber above six still letting your opponent forge a key unless you take another amber but taking absolutely everything they have above that so i have certainly been punished by risking a bit too much and then my opponent playing that too much to protect to completely empty me out Absolutely, absolutely. And myself many, many times as well. But with all said and done, we have to say that the card we feel has had the most long-term impact from Call of the Archons and will likely have even more so in the future. It is Control the Week. Mm-hmm. Control the Week. Congratulations to House Dis. So we're one to Dis, one to Shadows, and one to Logos at the moment as we head into art and this is the category where we pick out the cards that we think have the the best art or the most exciting interesting and mind-boggling art in in the set and there's plenty of mind-boggling art going on in keyforge but it's also interesting i think to reflect on the fact that in call of the archons keyforge was at a much earlier stage and when we see art from different houses now we we see quite a kind of cohesive picture of what that house looks like often the even the color pool used for each house is the two colors of the house and we weren't quite there at call of the archons there were lots of different colors used and maybe that that art didn't look quite as cohesive but it definitely gives a set a different flavor as a set in itself and the art is stunning what are our nominees that our nominees for the category of art are telega the creature from untamed with art by mads arm doorstep to heaven the action from house sanctum with art by mark uh and from House Shadows, Duskrunner, the upgrade with art by Matt Zielinger. And I think one thing that's probably 
the same for all three of these cards is they very much reflect the color scheme of their respective houses. And this is something that I think we're both blown away by in Keyforge that you have houses that aren't just, you know, a cohesive set of mechanics and feel very similar to play, but they also look very similar. They look like they have their own world and their world is inhabited in these different color pools that they have. You know, Doorstep to Heaven with the bright gold of Sanctum, um, Dusk Runner with the kind of murky blue inky blue vibe um of 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 shadows and then taliga with that um burnt orange and very kind of nature nature natural color green or that wild color green um but yeah taliga what what a stunning card and it's only really that when i was looking for cards to nominate for this category that i really was struck by how much was going on in the art by taliga mm-hmm and Zach, are there any honourable mentions here that we really haven't said, but we we would be remiss not to not to mention? Mm. Oh, there are a couple across all the sets that are particularly lovely. Uh, for me, I think I would say Hunting Witch. It's a very dynamic card with the character leaping and a beast companion. And maybe also uh, the aforementioned Guilty Hearts. It's very evocative, very dark, but still but still whimsical and fun at the same time. Absolutely. And we have to give a bit of a shout out to Natalie Russo, uh, the creator and designer and artist of some of the most colorful characters in Keyforge. Things like Archimedes from Age of Ascension, but also things like Fuzzy Gruen from the first set. Oh, yes. A lot of Natalie's art has ended up on on some really iconic cards, which is great. And what is our winner, Zach? And our winner for the category of art is Telega from House Untamed. So, uh, I mean, summary of that, definitely go and check out Telega because the art on on this is is stunning. She's carrying a staff with glowing eyes on it. It's got a skull and glowing eyes. And there's all these creatures in the background. One of them almost looks like one of the gremlins from the movie. (laughs) So very, very untamed. It really captures the very essence of the house. Mm-hmm. It really does. It really does. So congratulations to Telega, the art team at FFG, and especially uh, Mads Arm, the artist behind Telega. And what is our next category, Zach? The next category is cards that are most flavorful to their house. So what we mean by that is cards that really capture the spirit of the house that they're in. And I think there's probably a number of cards that capture that spirit, but we've got to state again how much each house feels like its own house and they really do different things they have different identities and these cards that we've we picked here really kind of typify those identities and what are they zach uh those cards that we've nominated for this category are mother the creature from house logos anger the action card from house brabnar and urchin the creature from house shadows so mother of course that card that allows you to draw one extra card at the end of each turn it's a creature it's got five power it's a little bit difficult to get off the board and it's definitely one that your opponent is going to want to get off the board uh have you had some good experiences or some very bad experiences with this card zach 
Oh, yes. Yes. A mother is always a difficult one to get off the board when your opponent plays it down. And of course, they get that one extra card immediately. So it's just such a solid card, difficult to remove and gives you a bonus where you just get to draw more cards, have more options. So I always love to see mother on my side of the board. And I'm always nervous when my opponent plays it because that five power really makes it difficult to take out. Anger is, of course, that card that allows Brobnar to do what Brobnar does best, and it is an action card that says ready and fight with a friendly creature. Mm-hmm. And it gives you an ammo pip as well, which is, yeah, ideal. It does. It's really in the spirit of the racing game with that amber pip and getting to ready a creature that wasn't ready before. So a lot, a lot of fun there. Always happy to see Anger in a Kodo deck. And the third and final one, Urchin, is our winner as the card that... This is just shadows, hands down. And do you have any Urchin and Fagin decks, Zach? I do. I do have uh, one Urchin and uh, Fagin deck, a couple Urchins and a Fagin, and they're just so much fun to play. That play effect, steal one, and then elusive on a tiny little one-power creature. It, It doesn't really get much more house shadows than that. Absolutely, and my Urchin's Fagin deck is my my go-to Call of the Archons deck. It is super fun, and it, it's very much House Shadows, and will be certainly making an appearance in March at the UK Grand Championship. So if you come up against me, bit of a heads up there, that might happen. <laughs> yes, bring all your Avinda and Javinda decks in case you face Ed. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take on all the vendors. Uh, And our final category, we're here already, and we're sorry to say goodbye to Call of the Archons, although you never really say goodbye to a set in Keyforge, do you? Our final category are those pesky cards that create the most difficult decisions for players to navigate. And it was really difficult for us to kind of narrow it down with this one but at the same time i think we feel that with call of the archons maybe it's easier to make decisions on with cards than it would be with some of those complex card interactions that you get all of the time and every single turn in worlds collide and and when they did print cards that were, were hard to 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 make decisions with these were often in the rare spots so i think it was a way in which newer players could discover the game kind of unencumbered by some of those more challenging decisions to make but what are our nominations for this snack our nominations for the category of cards that create difficult decisions are restoring guntis the creature from house dis the Sting, the Artifact from House Shadows, and lastly, Bouncing Death Quark, the action from House Logos. And what moments playing Call of the Archons have created the most difficult decisions for you, Zach? Ooh, well, I would have to say these are all great choices. Um, bouncing Death Quark, of course, knowing what to blow up with it. The Sting and Restoring Guntis are both, my goodness, I could spend half of a game just trying to lay down one of those cards and decide what to do with it. The Sting, of course, removing your Forge a Key Step and Restoring Guntis, you really uh, need to know when to play that so you can protect it and what house to call because it lets you uh, pick one house of, on your opponent's card that they can't call. So a lot of uh, a lot of calories have been burned as I sit there and have smoke pour out of my ears uh, with all three of these cards, to be honest. 
Um, but of course, there has to be there has to be a winner, and we are going to find that out. So the first card there, Restring Guntus. Oh, we've spoken a bit about Control the Week, and this really is is Control the Week, but as an ongoing effect and as a creature. And if you can find that sweet spot for keeping Restring Guntus there, maybe putting it behind a few taunt creatures, maybe in a new set, maybe warding it, maybe finding a way of, with a legacy Restring Guntus if they even exist. Um, of, of finding ways to prevent your opponent from interacting with it and doing it damage. Um, bouncing Death Quark every single time you play it, it is a risk-reward. It is how far do you want to go? How far do you want to take this? How many creatures of your own do you want to get rid of is going to give you value destroying your opponent's board? And it's a fascinating card because I think it really introduces the player to some of the concepts that we're dealing with every single game in Worlds Collide. But the the winner that our patrons picked was not indeed one, but it was two of these. It was both the Sting and Ristering Guntus. And have you ever been able to pull off the Sting in the manner in which you intended to, Zach? Mm. I have tried many times, and I have some decks that do uh, have a great game plan that includes the Sting, but I, I can't say I've had any truly dramatic victories using the Sting. Maybe a few times I've successfully gotten Amber off of it and then destroyed it later, but I'm never sure that was the right call in that particular game, spending all of that energy and time planning just around the Sting. So that is one I am definitely still learning, is the Sting. And and myself too. I even bought a few Sting decks, and I don't make a habit of jumping on the secondary market. I think the most I've spent on there is uh, $15 or so, but I thought I'd buy a few interesting Sting decks and see if I could make it work. And the answer is, so far, not consistently. So I, <laughs> I think I need to take cues from a better player than myself to, to do that. And for that reason, I think it thoroughly own, earns its crown as the the top card here. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly. It and Ristring Guntus are both complicated cards because they ask the question of when you want to play it. The Sting, if you play it on the wrong turn, you'll just you'll have an entirely too large pile of amber, amber. And if you play Ristring Guntus at the wrong time, they'll be able to just take it out, no problem, and it won't actually be a threat. Please do reach out to us and tell us what you thought we are to be found pretty much everywhere now we are on twitter as at call of discovery we are on facebook you guessed it call of discovery and we have a rather snazzy instagram account now as well but as always you can email us questions to at discoverkeyforge at gmail.com if you're enjoying call of discovery you can become part of our glorious patreon family via the link to patreon below where you can put your strange and wonderful decks in the spotlight and be the architect of the questions that we ask our future guests you can also pick up a rather snazzy call of discovery hoodie at our teespring which is linked below but as always if you think a friend would enjoy this podcast please do help them to discover it Thank you.